All right, good morning, everybody. If you'll turn your Bibles to Psalms, uh, Psalm 110, we may get to 111, I'm not sure. It's a pretty short psalm, but uh, it's a messianic psalm. It's a prophetic psalm about the coming of the Messiah. In fact, it's one of the psalms that Israel got a lot of their doctrine or understanding of what the Messiah would look like, because as he's coming, what, what are we to be looking for? And so they'd have to read this and then sort of decode it. One of the difficulties they had was that he's a son. What does that mean? See, they were looking for a Messiah like Moses, a man called by God to lead them. And so when God says a son, they think, well, you mean a son like David, like, or like I'm a son, or like I'm a daughter. And that's how they decoded that, not realizing that it would truly be the Son of God, um, God come in the flesh. There's a lot of, every time Easter comes around, there's, there's all those that are opposed to Christ that would say it was a conspiracy theory, and you've probably read the, the things they write, and if you don't, good, it's worth avoiding and ignoring, but their thoughts are that it was a conspiracy and that the disciples really took the body and so on and, and all, and then whatever, um, and they all got martyred for their lie, but that doesn't, doesn't make any sense. If you were going to do a conspiracy, wouldn't you, in my opinion anyway, want to go with the conventional thinking? Why would you try to do something completely different than what everybody in the nation was looking for and decide to do something different? You would want, if you want the lie to be believed, you would say, yes, he was. He was just like Moses. And, and, and you would go with the conventional thinking as opposed to what really happened. And so the, the idea of this Psalm 110 was very problematic, to say the least, for a lot of rabbis to teach about this Messiah. Because it went against all conventional thinking. It went against all their, uh, their ideas. And we all have those things. We all do that. It's not like we, I don't mean to bash them. I mean, we, we're trying to figure out what the second coming is going to look like. We still argue in the church about when that's going to take place. Pre, mid, post, pre-wrath, all these things that we go through our minds and we're trying to decipher and, and figure out and um, what will that look like and when does this happen and is the revelation, the book of Revelation chronological? I mean, we go through all these gymnastics. And so I don't blame them for that. We have presuppositions. We have our own thoughts on it. But if you just read it plainly, and I think that's the key to studying all Scripture, just read it plainly. We don't have to, we don't have to do any gymnastics or bend it in a certain direction or tie it in a knot to make it fit what we think. If we're open in, in our hearts and we're allowing the Holy Spirit to teach us, we just read it plainly and the Holy Spirit will teach us. We don't have to guess. If we let Scripture interpret Scripture. And so this psalm, although as short as it is, was, was the subject of a lot of controversy. And we'll try to wade through most of that this morning. It begins in verse 1. The Lord said to my Lord, oh, we've already got a problem. What? <laughs> well, it's only crazy and, and a problem if it doesn't mean exactly what it means. The Lord said to my Lord. 
See, for us, hindsight's twenty twenty. Well, yeah, of course the Father would say that to his son Jesus, because both are Lord. We believe in the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It makes perfect sense. But for them, what do you mean Lord? What does it say in the Hebrew? What does it say? You know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord shall send the rod of your strength out of Zion, rule in the midst of your enemies. Now, they liked that. When our Moses comes, when our man led by God comes, he's going to take care of all of our enemies, the son. God has no son but Israel, is one of the things they would say. God has no son but Israel. So they have placed themselves in that position of being the son. And out of Israel is going to rise up this great deliverer like Moses, and he's going to vanquish all our foes. You can understand why Palm Sunday looked the way Palm Sunday looked. Here comes the Messiah riding on the colt, riding into the donkey. Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Not from our sins, but from our enemies. Rome, those Roman bad guys, you know. And as he came to the fork of the road inside Jerusalem, one went to the palace and one went to the temple. Jesus chose the temple and went and started flipping tables, which absolutely did not make sense according to their understanding of this psalm. He's supposed to take care of the Roman yoke. He's supposed to overthrow Nero. What's he doing there? Is he going to go pray? Why is he destroying his house, the house of the Lord? It didn't make sense to them. It's one of the most quoted Psalms in the New Testament. In Matthew chapter 22, verses 41 through 46, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them, saying, what do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? Now, he's a rabbi. Jesus is not only Messiah, but he's also a great teacher. And so he's trying to teach the Pharisees. He's trying to get them to think beyond what their presupposition was about this Messiah. Whose son is the Christ? And now they're going to give their their response. We know who the son of the Christ is. He's the son of David. They said the son of David. They said to them, how then does David in the spirit, Psalm 110, how does he say, the spirit called him Lord, saying the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Now that stumbled them. We don't think this way. It's, and so we have to do a little bit of Jewish understanding. I would never call Bo, my son, Lord. He will call me Lord because I am over him. There's an authority structure there. I would never say, Lord, J.D. said to Lord Bo. That's, no, no, no. That's just Bo. You know, not that I don't love Bo or J.C. or Seth or any of my sons, but I would never call them Lord in the Hebrew culture. That's just not going to happen. And so they went, yeah, that is a problem for us, isn't it? Because David would never call his son or his offspring or his soon-to-be Lord. It's always the other way around. The greater blesses the lesser. So the response was, if David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? And no one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day on did anyone dare question him anymore. 
stumped the Pharisees, which is all they did was study Scripture. They were the scholars of the day. And because when it comes to scholars, some, sometimes, not always, um, it's an echo chamber a lot of times. You just hear what other people say. You surround yourself with people you agree with. You like persons and you read their specific things. All of us have authors we like, or we have uh, pastors we like, or commentaries we like, and it's hard to, to get outside of that. Well, the Pharisees were a tight-knit group, and so were the Sadducees, and neither of them listened to each other, and so they listened to each other's group, and it's just an echo chamber. All you got was congratulatory, you know, oh yeah, oh yeah, you know, a constant affirmation of what you thought. Never just getting away from it all and studying the, what the passage says and letting God speak to your heart, you already know, therefore. And so that's why it stumped them. They, should, they could have responded. They didn't respond this way. They could have responded, that's a good point. We never thought of it that way. I wonder who the son is. It must be something other than what we thought of. But that's, that would damage my pride. That would damage our circle. My peers wouldn't look at me the same way anymore. And so they were best, they'd just be quiet. It's a good question. We don't have an answer for that. Now, some of the Pharisees get saved. Some of the centurions get saved. There's a lot of people listening in the background to all these conversations where these moments are actually working. See, when I read the text, a lot of times I'm like, these Pharisees never listen. No, some of them were. And some of the, 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 the Roman soldiers, some of them beat Jesus and had a ball doing it. They just loved it. They loved the pain. They're just sadistic that way. They didn't see him anything, any other. He's just like every other criminal. Beat him. What a dope. But there were, at the foot of the cross, centurions going, this is truly the Son of God. People were being touched by these conversations. Now, the Bible documents those that were dumbfounded, those who disagreed and thought only about killing Jesus after they got defeated by him in the argument, you know. But there are some getting saved. There are some that are actually questioning, and I think that's important for us. Um, when we read the text, when we read Scripture on our own, when we study by ourselves, whether that's sometimes we have you know, these group sessions and, and all, but we should be studying on our own as well. Those are the times I think are the most powerful where the Holy Spirit has our full undivided attention. We don't have anybody else speaking to us, and the Holy Spirit is our teacher and guide and can really bring us into a great understanding. He can start doing the cross-references in our head. Things we've read previously, he can put together with the scriptures we just are reading today and say, do you see how that lines up over here? Do you see how, remember, in Leviticus you didn't understand that, but over here in Matthew as we're going through that, that just explained that Leviticus question you had five years ago? Do you see how these things are working? And God interprets scripture for us as we go through it. In Acts chapter 2, verses 32 through 36, Peter, giving his great sermon, This Jesus God has raised up, of which we are all witnesses, therefore being exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he poured out this which you now see and hear. He's talking about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's happened. And then he quotes this psalm, For David did not ascend into heavens, but he says himself, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand, till I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. Peter fully understands 
Peter the fisherman, not the scholar, explains Psalm 110 to a nation that had it in their heads. It must be this way. He says, no, this Jesus is the one Psalm 110 is talking about. There's a great lesson for them. Some heard and some didn't. 3,000 people got saved after that sermon. See, truth shared in love by Peter here saves people. Same with us. We have to know this. We have to have this in our hearts. See, my calling and your calling is not just to live a life well lived. You know, I think that's how we take our salvation sometimes. Okay, now that I have Jesus, now I'm just going to, I'm going to just try to maintain and not try to sin. That's not what we're called to do. We're called to know these things, to share these things, to explain these things to people. There's a lot of ignorance about te- the texts out there. There's a lot of presuppositions about Jesus and Christianity, and we're here to know the truth and be led by the Spirit and be able to explain away the false and proclaim the truth to everybody around us. We're here for that. Not just a Oh, I hope I don't sin this Monday. I mean, that's part of it. But that's not why we were saved. I was thinking about this. I was reading, sometimes I read the news in the morning, or as much as I can get. And I haven't researched this enough, but it popped up and I'm like, you're kidding me. The Budweiser CEO is a CIA agent? What? I mean, it's a stranger than fiction. Are you kidding me? And, and, and why did he... Why did he post it? Why did he let everybody know if it's a big secret? And I got to thinking about all the distractions that we're going through right now. All the things in this world. We're, when, we, when we begin to worship, one of the things we pray for is, God, let the things of this world grow strangely dim. You know why that is? So that we can focus on the true conspiracy. <laughs> we are born-again believers in Jesus Christ, as ambassadors for Christ from a different kingdom, we're insurgents into this world, and we're here to absolutely destroy the works of Satan. That's the conspiracy we're a part of, or supposed to be a part of. The things that are going on between governments and Budweiser CEOs and anything else and transgender and all these things, oh, oh, we're so focused on the place that we're supposed to be subverting through the power of Jesus Christ and the gospel of Jesus Christ, we're so focused on all these, what are they doing? None of these things matter. They all vanish away. The scriptures tell us exactly how this all goes down. There's a much bigger conspiracy theory to be a part of. Who cares about all the other stuff? We're here to subvert the kingdom of darkness and translate it into light. We're called to that. And I, and I say all that because how easy it is. I read that and I'm like, oh, I want to look into that. No, you have a message to teach this morning, J.D. Focus on that. Go over your notes. Focus on the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Yeah, but the Budweiser CEO, that's just really weird. And you see how easily I could have spent hours talking about something that's absolutely worthless. Sean Penn, he's a CIA agent. Dennis Rodman, the basketball player, was a CIA agent. Who cares? (laughs) Guess what you are? You are an insurgent into a hostile environment to spread the gospel and subvert and change and overthrow the current dark kingdom of Satan. 
I mean, that's kind of cool, actually. You know, if you think about tomorrow morning, <laughs> sorry, I'm not really a real estate agent. <laughs> I'm here to subvert, you know, that's just my cover, you know. I'm here to tell everybody about Jesus Christ. And are we busy about that? Or are we distracted with the things of this world? Jesus caught everybody off guard. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15, 23 through 28, he again quotes this same passage. But, and, and the reason I'm going over these is because there was so much undoing that had to be done. We've got three different authors now. We have Jesus himself. We have Peter. Now we have Paul all trying to explain this misunderstood psalm. So it must be important. But each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, he's talking about resurrections, Christ the firstfruits, after those are Christ at his coming, then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God uh, to, to God the Father, when he puts on or puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death, for he has put all things under his feet. That's the quote. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. And so he's trying to explain that Jesus was sent to put all things up, and now that that's taken place, Jesus has conquered all. He's going to deliver them to his Father, and his Father then will be over him, and he's going to be over them. He's just explaining it to him. Hebrews, I think it's Paul, says in one thirteen. But to which of, his, of the angels has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Trying to teach away, enlighten those who were duped into thinking that, that this Messiah was going to be some sort of human. He says, now which one of the angels did he ever say that to? In other words, this is far and above and greater than the angels. Jesus is. Later on in that same book, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 12 through 14. But this man, Jesus, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. Trying to clarify that. Back to Psalm 110. You can see why this little psalm is going to take us a while to get through. Verse 3, your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. In the beauties of holiness from the womb of the morning, you have the dew of your youth. The Lord has sworn and will not relent. You are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Interesting. Not according to Aaron. Not according to the Levitical tribe. See, those are the priests they knew. He set up, Jesus did, God did set up the entire Levitical tribe, the Levites, to be the priests for the entire nation of Israel. And everybody born in the Levitical tribe would be a priest. Servants, in one way or another, you would do that. Here, in the psalm, says, no, he's, the, the one that's coming will be a priest forever, not temporary, not one who takes turns, 
Not one who is born and then dies, but one who is a priest forever. And he's going to be of a completely different order other than the order of Levites. He's going to be of the order of Melchizedek. Who's that? Well, that's back, way back in the Old Testament. When Abraham was rescuing um, his nephew and uh, ran into this mysterious person, Melchizedek, a priest of the Most High God, who received tithes and offerings from Abraham, which means the greater, you know, the, the, the greater was this order of Melchizedek. And he's this mysterious figure. Some say it's Jesus in the Old Testament. I don't think so, but I don't know what to think. I, I, I know enough to know I don't know everything. Let's put it that way. Could be, might not be. There's a lot of arguments both ways. Some are very sure. Some don't know. I'm in the category of I certainly don't want to be the one that misunderstands Psalm 110. I don't want to under, misunderstand because I'm just going to believe what the scriptures say about it. Jesus is of that order. The point of him saying that wasn't for us to understand who Melchizedek is necessarily, but to understand that it's not of the Levites. It's not even from your nation. It's from a priesthood that was before Isaac or, you know, had Jacob and before Jacob became Israel. I mean, it's, it's before all of that. It's a much longer lasting, more permanent priesthood. The Levites are relatively new compared to this order of Melchizedek is the idea. And so he tries to explain that to him. He's of a higher order. Now, with that, I focused on the verse 3, your people shall be volunteers. What does that mean? Well, let me go through some scriptures for you. Because it talks about the rule and reign of Jesus Christ. There's a thousand-year reign of Christ, the millennial kingdom. Okay, It's about Revelation 19 and 20. Okay, and we're, so we're going to learn about this a little bit, these volunteers. Paul writes to Timothy, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, If we endure, Timothy, believer, pastor, we shall also reign with him. What? I don't think he needs any help. <laughs> it's not like I can't manage all these people. JD, go over to the south. No, it's not like that. But he says, we rule and reign with him. In other words, there is some sort of order in the way this thing goes, and there's a long conversation. But when we went through earlier of all the orders of, the, of the, uh, um, those who were resurrected from the dead, one of those is us, the believers. We rule and reign with him, he tells Timothy. And he tells Timothy, the pastor, that to for, don't, don't forget, no matter how people belittle you or make fun of you or whatever, don't forget you're going to rule and reign with Christ. So there is something coming that's greater than all the difficulties and trials you think you're going through right now. One day you're going to be ruling and reigning with him. If we deny him, he also will deny us. So he's saying, hold fast. Now, this ruling and reigning, Revelation 20, verses 4 through 6. And I saw thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And so these are the people that have made it through the great tribulation and us. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. That millennial reign of Christ is what that is. It's a very short description of that moment. We don't exactly know what goes on. We've got some prophecies in the past that tell us how these things are unfolded. What do you mean rule? What do we do? What's our job? We won't get into that this morning. 
But the rest of the dead did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part of the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. What that looks like or how that is, or we've got some ideas. It's a little foggy though, to say the least, as to how this all gets unfolded. There is... a, a Jesus is physically present. Sin is still available for people to be disobedient. At the end of the thousand years, Satan is released and is allowed to dupe all these people that we and Jesus have been ruling over that came out of the great tribulation period who didn't receive the mark. Of, you know, so it's, it, is, it is foggy. I'm admitting that. But that's not the point of the teaching this morning. The point of the teaching is to understand that you're going to be volunteers in this kingdom. You're a part of this. We think very small of ourselves sometimes. And I understand that. We're taught humility and that we're less than. But eventually we become equal with the angels, he tells us in Scripture, as far as authority goes, and we rule and reign with Christ. Wow. You know? Their people shall be volunteers. In Hebrews chapter 5, verses 1 through 14, for every high priest taken from among men is appointed for men in things pertaining to God, that they may offer both gifts and sacrifices for sin. Now the Hebrews guy is trying to teach the difference between the current priests that you're used to versus the high priest, Jesus, who's coming. He can have compassion on those who are ignorant and going astray since he himself is also subject to weakness. Because of this, he is required as for the people. So also for himself to offer sacrifices for sins. The priests you're used to have to first cleanse themselves. They have to offer up sacrifices because they're prone to weakness like the people they're about to minister to are prone to weakness. And we understand all that. Jesus doesn't need any of that is what he's getting at. There is no sacrifice that Jesus has to offer for his sins because he's sinless. He's a much better priest. So also Christ... Okay, and no man takes this honor to himself, but he who is called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not glorify himself to become a high priest, but it was he who said to him, you are my son, today I have begotten you. As he also says in another place, and this is the quote from Psalm 110, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. This high priest that's coming that he writes to the Hebrews to tell the Hebrews to stop being Hebrews, he explains Psalm 110. There's a high priest coming that's not of the Levitical. The whole Levitical thing is done. The temple is done. The sacrifices are done. The feasts, the, the, the Passovers, all those Sabbaths are all completed and finished and fulfilled in the one that casts the shadow. And he is here now, Jesus, the high priest, the order of Melchizedek, better than all of this, who doesn't need any sacrifices for his sins because he's sinless. That's why he can be a priest forever. Who in the days of his flesh, verse 7, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly fear, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Not temporary, eternal called by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek, of whom we have much to say and hard to explain. I'm glad he said that. <laughs> Since you have become dull of hearing. 
Now, he does blame us for that. I'd love to explain it to you, but you're not very bright. You know, you're having a hard time hearing this as it is. And, I, and you do. My head swims when I read about this stuff. and I do cross-reference, I'm like, I don't think I have this. And I got to teach this tomorrow, you know. I'm supposed to know this backwards and forwards, and I'm not sure I get it myself, Lord. He's like, eh, it's because you're kind of dull, you know. And I appreciate that. He knows me. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you become in to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is unskilled in word of righteousness, for he is a babe. But solid food belongs to those who are full age, that is, those who by reason of use have their senses exercised to discern both good and evil. Now I threw that in there. It's not necessarily a part of the teaching today, but isn't it? important to know that there is an expectation of maturity in the believer, that we're not to just get saved and just stay there. We're never more saved than the day you're saved, the day you're born again. Understand that. But he doesn't, he does expect growth, maturity, more understanding, study, comprehension, working out our own salvation, not working for it, but working it out. Oh, oh, you know, it's important to stretch and to exercise those muscles. Took uh, Bo and his buddy down to this gym in KC yesterday. Rock climbing and, and uh, trampolines everywhere and the whole thing, you know. And, and uh, that's the key for those of you who want to know about easy parenting is you, you pick up your buddy and his buddy and you go and, and, and they play. <laughs> and, and you don't have to do it <laughs> kind of thing. But this morning he woke up, he goes, Dad. I'm sore here and here. You know, he's pointing to the bruises. I think I, he's trying to figure out where it all happened. And I'm like, I feel that, man. I, I climb over a fence wrong, and the next day I'm like, I don't know what I did, honey, but my back is crooked. Well, you climbed that fence, you know. You bent down and tied your shoes or whatever. You coughed too hard. <laughs> that just shows, it shows atrophy, muscle atrophy is what it shows. It's just you, you're not moving enough. J.D.? You know, move, and you wouldn't feel these things anymore. You might be lubed up a little bit better. Spiritually speaking, sometimes we get muscle atrophy, spiritual muscle atrophy. We're like, oh, this is hard. I can't even focus on them. It's just blah, blah, blah. I don't understand. When I read it, I don't get it. I need to exercise a little more. I work that muscle out up here and work this muscle out a little bit here and let God speak. It's so easy just to spiritually binge watch something and not have to work and put effort. Someone said, <laughs> I don't know what, what it was or where I saw it, but he said, man, how do you look so good? How did you build those muscles? He goes, uh, diet and exercise. It's not that hard. <laughs> you obviously don't know me, you know? <laughs> how do you grow spiritually? How do you know these things? How do you study the Word of God? How do you get all that stuff? That's so deep. That's it. The scriptures and the Holy Spirit, it's not that hard. It's just taking the time to do it. And so I threw that in there because I think the writer of Hebrews is like, look, go beyond what the Pharisees taught you. Go beyond what the Levites taught or the, the, the Sadducees taught you. And study a little bit deeper and let the Holy Spirit teach you and bring you to a place of maturity. Okay. Verse 5. The Lord is at your right hand. He shall execute kings in the day of his wrath. He shall judge among the nations. He shall fill the places 
with dead bodies. He shall execute the heads of many countries. He shall drink of the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he shall lift up the head. Kind of a dark ending to a psalm. Uh, But he's talking about how that all ends. What he does, that judgment comes. And so that's our second and final, the second section of Revelation 20, but the final cross-reference for this morning. Now, when the thousand years have expired... We've been ruling and reigning with him for some reason and somehow. When it's over, Satan will be released from his prison and will go out to deceive the nations which are in the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, and gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. They went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and beloved city. And fire came down from God out of heaven and devoured them. The devil who deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. That's a kind of a dark note to end on, but it's, a, it's an important note to end on. There are consequences for all of these things. The understanding of Psalm 110 isn't about learning 110. It's about learning where am I with the Lord. Do I understand my roles and my responsibilities? Have I been brought up to think that attendance and owning a Bible is sufficient and enough? And that's what I'm called to. And when people ask, I tell them I'm a Christian. And that's what I'm called to. Or is it more? There's a lot more in store for us. And I think practicing now, living now, not waiting for the day when we rule and reign with Christ for a thousand years, but begin to be a part of his kingdom now, be ambassadors for him now, and share now. And not be distracted. So to the point where we no longer do what we're going to be doing for this thousand years, we're so distracted, we're caught off guard, we're we're unprepared, our minds are elsewhere. Being ever-present in the Spirit, thinking and seeing every opportunity, every person you run into every single day is an opportunity to subvert. To bring people to Jesus. To recruit. To share. Those are probably the wrong words to use, but I don't know how else to drive the point home. We're surrounded by lost people every single day. And what I mean by lost is they are not in Christ and they have a mistaken identity of who they are. They were made in the image of God, but they have forgotten that and they are walking after their own lusts. Whatever the current news thing is, that's just the latest identity crisis. We've got many other identity crises other than gender and sexual orientation. we, We have so many. And and the only solution to any of these problems, any of the identity crisis, is to let people know who their identity is in. Once they realize who they are and what child they are and who made them, their identity becomes very clear. And it erases all the other problems, all the other things that people get confused about. I have now, I have clarity. I know who my father is. I know what he wants me to be. I know who I was made to be. And I begin to... Focus on that. I don't have to wonder anymore. I don't have to make it up as I go along. I don't have to discover that on my own. I've been told. I've been, it's been explained. I've been enlightened by the Lord. 
The world is lost. They are dark. They are blind. They cannot see who they are or what they're supposed to do or be. And you have clear sight because you've been born again. Because Christ has opened your eyes as a believer. And we are to lead people to that and to him. This morning we're going to have a a time of communion. We didn't have it last week because of Easter, so we're going to do that this morning. It's It's the base. It's our baseline. We do this. We have this little cup and this little piece of bread in remembrance of what Christ did for us, what he did when he died on the cross for our sins, Easter, celebrating all of that, the resurrection. We could not get to heaven, and what we could not do for ourselves, Christ did for us, and that's all this represents. This is a, we do this in remembrance of him. Thank you, Kim. This is where it all started for us. If you're not a believer this morning, maybe you've grown up in the church or you've been grown, you know a lot about Christianity, but you've never been born again, which Jesus says in John 3 is a must. If your eyes have never been opened to the things of the Spirit and you never understood who your father was or that you were to commit your life to him and he's going to give you a mission and goals and, and exactly what he wants you to do, you need to do that this morning. Don't live another day wandering around distracted by the things of this world, living for the weekend, dreading Mondays in a cycle of a circle, just a dead circle. But to open your eyes to see what Christ has for you, receive the forgiveness of sins and let all that guilt and shame be lifted off of your back, knowing that you're right with God knowing that he's pleased with you and that his son died on the cross for you, knowing all of that. It's a choice. It's a decision you make. And I don't like to talk you into it. I, I like to put urgency on it for sure. But you were signing up to be a child of God. Nothing will be the same. You'll never enjoy your sin again. You'll never be able to be in it or live after it without conviction. God will change you from the inside out. He'll begin to take away your likes and passions and replace them with his likes and passions. You'll be a new person. You'll be a new creation in Christ. He'll give you a new mind, a new heart. You begin to see things differently in color instead of black and white. It's wonderful but you will not be the same. It is not something you put in your back pocket or attached to your current life. It will absolutely turn you upside down or right side up, I should say. And I encourage it. The night that Jesus was betray, betrayed, he took the bread that they were eating, he broke it and gave thanks and said, take and eat, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat this, do this in remembrance of me. Now he wasn't crucified at that point, but he was going to the next day. They wanted them to remember this Passover meal, that this is me. It's always spoken of me, the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. The lamb that was applied to the blood, or the blood that was applied to the doorposts of the Israel's homes in Egypt that spared them death. The angel of death passed over them. That's me on your life. But you have to hear me 
You have to apply the blood of Jesus to the doorposts of your own life, and you have to trust. There's nothing you can do to fight against it, but you just trust that as long as I'm on the other side of that blood, there is no wrath. There is no angel of death. He also took the cup, and he said, take and drink. This is the cup of my new covenant, my blood that's shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And as often as you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. We remember that this morning, that Jesus' blood was shed on the cross for our sins instead of ours. He took our place. The cross that was intended for us and that we deserved, he went in our stead. And we're thankful for that this morning. It's humble to eat this and drink this. It's supposed to be. Now, it doesn't mean we're powerless, though. It just means we're humble. It brings out the meekness in us. Meekness is power and control. I know who has done what for me, and now I also know what my responsibility is. And that's why we eat and drink. So let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this morning and this time we've had with you. We thank you for your word. We thank you for telling us ahead of time in this Psalm 110, prophetically sharing with the world your intentions that they could hope for and wait for, and it happened, just like you said. As we sang that song today about faithfulness, you're faithful to fulfill all of your promises in our lives, not promises of riches and gold and wealth and power and all these things that the world tries to get us distracted with, God, but eternal life that it's eternal, that it's forever and ever, that it doesn't come to an end, that there's no more to do, that it was truly finished at the cross. Those are faithful promises you gave to us, and we, we believe those and accept those today. Lord, for those that didn't know you this morning but want to, they feel that tug on their heart like they're supposed to do something today, that they're supposed to give you their lives, they're supposed to be different. They want to pray, Lord, thank you for dying on the cross for my sins. I, I believe that, that my sins separated me from you. My actions, my behaviors that were not of you have caused me to feel distant and guilty and and shameful. But I understand that you died on the cross for my sins, that you took the penalty that I have coming and deserved away from me and put it upon yourself. And I don't have that anymore waiting for me. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins. I accept you and believe on you for my salvation. And I receive you into my heart today. I pray that you'd make me a new creation. Change me from the inside out. Give me a new mind, your mind. Give me a new heart, your heart, soft and and open to everything you have for me. I pray that you'd fill me with your spirit, that when I read your word and study and work out my salvation that I now have in you, I pray that you'd teach me and bring me to maturity, that it wouldn't always be milk, but I could chew on the solid meat of your word. I thank you for all you've done for me. I pray that you'd help me to see all of us this morning, to see Monday in a different light, to see what we're called to, to see who around us needs you, to be open to doing radical things for you, to to share when we didn't think we could, to open our mouths and and speak of you, to speak your name, to speak truth to those around us, God, that are lost that we'd have compassion first and empathy for them, that we might know that, yeah, we're weak too, and we were, and you saved us, that they can have that same salvation we have, that we'd see them the way you see them, and that we take the time to minister to them, to serve them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this morning. In Jesus' name, let's eat.
you're visiting, we break our glasses afterwards because it symbolizes our broken lives before Christ. But he's repaired us and he's filled us with him. We're earthen vessels, but we carry Christ wherever we go. And when people meet us, that's what should come out of us is Christ. So that's why we do what we're about to do. Ready? One, two, three. All right. Have a good rest of the week. If you need prayer before you go, please come up. Be glad to pray with you.